Helen Keller once said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but lacking vision. On today's show, we set our sights on the Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin's Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, focusing on the pioneering vision and industry leadership of its Eye Institute, including its history. The Eye Institute did not develop in an isolated field. It was part of a time when the medical school was trying to move forward, and it grew from there. Advancements through technology. Adaptive optics was first proposed in the 50s as a conceptual or theoretical idea, but it wasn't until the late 80s that other scientists and other fields caught wind of this amazing technology. And its commitment to research. It is more important now than ever because diabetes and diabetic eye disease are increasing. So our goal is to reduce vision loss, prevent it if at all possible. 2016 marks the 40th anniversary of the Freighterton and Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute. So join us as we celebrate its past, present, and future inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. As mentioned, 2016 marks the 40th anniversary of the Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute. Over the years, the Eye Institute has been a leader in patient care, clinical care, and research. And on today's show, we'll highlight some of the reasons why. To begin with, we want to share some historical perspective on how the Eye Institute came to be. For that, we enlisted the expertise of Dr. Walter Gager, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Medical College's archivist. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gager recently from his home in northern Wisconsin, where he's now enjoying retirement. To begin with, Dr. Gager says that the Eye Institute didn't just happen. It came at a time of necessary growth for Milwaukee's medical center. The Eye Institute did not develop in an isolated field. It was part of a time when the medical school was trying to move forward, and it grew from there as the medical center concept developed. And that growth really took off with the arrival of Dr. Richard Schultz as the first full-time head of the ophthalmology department. Dr. Schultz arrived in 1964, and the first thing he did was start to develop a faculty. And in 66, he began talking about an eye institute. I had come from an eye institute. And uh, two of the first people he chose came from my institutes, and uh, he wanted one in Milwaukee. And so he got one. But it certainly didn't happen overnight. It took years of convincing others, planning, and fundraising to construct the Eye Institute building that now stands along 87th Street on what is now the Milwaukee Regional Medical Center campus. In 1974, then, they began the construction of the Eye Institute even before the 
medical center was up. The planning was in it, and the center was developing, but the institute went up before that. They broke ground, and it was up and running within about three years. One early collaborator in helping to fund the project was philanthropist Jules Stein. Dr. Gager tells us about this colorful figure's connection. Well, Jules Stein was a very interesting fellow. He worked his way through college playing in a small group and also helped musicians get gigs. By the time he got into medical school, he had created a little private company of his own. He went through medical school, and then he went through an ophthalmology residency. By that time, he had formed the Music Corporation of America. He practiced ophthalmology for a very short period of time, and then he left ophthalmology and devoted his full energies to MCA, and he ended up signing up many of the great musicians out there. Along the way, because of his interest in ophthalmology, he developed a research to prevent blindness and assistance to medical schools who wanted to create eye institutes. Including our own eye institute at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thankfully, he donated, I think, about a quarter of a million dollars to the development of the eye institute. Opening in 1976, the Eye Institute was first chaired by Dr. Richard Schultz. Dr. Gager shares what he believes is Dr. Schultz's enduring legacy as its initial leader. He was a very complex man, but he sure knew what to do and what to get and who to help and who to hire. And he created a faculty that became nationally and internationally known. And the research that came out of the Eye Institute, same thing, nationally and internationally known. But I think his prime accomplishment would be the fact that he trained 206 very well-trained ophthalmologists. And 11 of the faculty members and fellows and residents became heads of eye departments around the country. So he trained a lot of great teachers and a lot of fine practitioners. Under Dr. Schultz's watchful eye, the Eye Institute achieved many significant firsts and notable discoveries, particularly in retinal and corneal research. One of the first people that he hired was Thomas Auberg, and the retina section became popular in the research that it did on macular degeneration. Many of the treatments that they developed were used throughout the world. Also, Auberg created a professional relationship with Henry Edelhauser, who was a physiologist doing research on corneas, and together they did research, and Edelhauser developed solutions that became universally used within the ophthalmology community. Today, the Eye Institute is chaired by Dr. Dale Hoyer. And Dr. Gager says that the Eye Institute continues to evolve and remains poised for growth and success heading into the future. Dr. Hoyer is a specialist in glaucoma, and so he's developed a glaucoma section that is nationally known. As far as research goes, he has a great research department, and furthering the macular studies that were done during Schultz's era. He remodeled the whole Eye Institute, and he's developed a very large and very capable faculty in his training, some very fine people. And so, as we mark the Eye Institute's 40th anniversary, he says, by honoring the past, we catch a glimpse of the future. If you don't know the past, you can't help predict the future. But the charge of an eye department or a medical school is research, clinical care, and patient care. And I think the medical school is on the verge of becoming one of the big famous medical schools in the United States. And the eye department under Dr. Hoyer is continuing the tradition that Dr. Schultz built. Our sincere thanks to Dr. Walter Gager, clinical professor emeritus of ophthalmology and archivist at the Medical College of Wisconsin, for sharing his expert historical insight. Throughout its 40 years, the Eye Institute has been committed to being a leader in eye research, particularly in the diagnosis and treatment of degenerative eye diseases that affect the retina. Today, technological advancements provide researchers the ability to view the microscopic cone and rod photoreceptor cells in the eye at the molecular level. 
This breakthrough technology, known as adaptive optics, has been used in other sciences for years, but it's only recently that it's been applied in ophthalmological research. To learn more about adaptive optics, we spoke with Dr. Joe Carroll, co-director of the Eye Institute's Advanced Ocular Imaging Program and professor of ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Carroll begins by explaining that adaptive optics was first used by astronomers in studying stars and distant galaxies well before it began being used in eye research. A lot of people don't know that adaptive optics actually was a classified government research program in the 70s and 80s. And it wasn't until it was declassified in the late 80s that other scientists and other fields caught wind of this amazing technology. Adaptive optics was first proposed in the 50s as sort of a conceptual or theoretical idea, but it wasn't until the U.S. military had demonstrated that it could be done for astronomical purposes that people began to take notice. So it was in the 90s that vision scientists and ophthalmologists began to look at it as a way to potentially improve imaging in the eye. So what exactly is the science behind adaptive optics, and how does it work? In many ways, it's like a funhouse mirror. It changes the way things look as it reflects off of that surface. So the core technological element of adaptive optics is a means in which to change the light that's passing through the imaging system. So as we make measurements about the optical imperfections of the eye, we can program in the inverse of those imperfections into the mirror. It changes its shape, and the result is no more optical imperfections in your imaging system. Now, while it can overcome aberrations such as blurriness in achieving dramatically improved image clarity and resolution, Dr. Carroll points out that adaptive optics is limited in what it can and can't do. The aberrations are just one aspect that disrupt our image quality as we try to image the inside of the human eye. Diffraction, which is governed by the size of your pupil, is the fundamental resolution limit of imaging the eye. There's also things like cataracts that spread light over a large area and distort light. That kind of a disruption in imaging can't be fixed with adaptive optics. So adaptive optics only takes care of one aspect of your eye that disrupts image quality, which is these higher order aberrations or imperfections. But in the areas where it does work, it works extremely well. For example, if you've ever heard of customized LASIK surgery, those are exactly the same imperfections of the eye that we correct with adaptive optics, except in that LASIK surgery, they're actually changing the cornea permanently to get rid of those imperfections. In our technique, we're using that funhouse mirror to temporarily get rid of those imperfections so that we can take a high-resolution picture. So have the advantages of utilizing adaptive optics in eye imaging and research led doctors to be able to diagnose degenerative eye disorders sooner? Well, unfortunately, no. And that is the holy grail with a technology like adaptive optics. Imaging the human eye has been around for 150 years. There's been a few major advances in retinal imaging over the years, one of which is optical coherence tomography. You won't find an ophthalmologist's office today without an optical coherence tomographer. So adaptive optics now in this imaging space has to compete, and it has some disadvantages. It's about five times more expensive, incredibly difficult to operate, and there isn't a, quote, killer clinical application yet. So as people begin to identify those clinical areas where it can have its biggest impact, then it would rapidly, I think, ascend to a go-to clinical tool. But right now it's restricted mainly to research labs and experimental research studies and trials. And it's important to consider that adaptive optics isn't meant to be a standalone tool so much as... It's a complementary imaging tool. It gives us a high-resolution picture of the living human retina. And to take that by itself, in most cases, is pretty useless. It's only 
only when you combine it with an optical coherence tomography image, a traditional fundus image, the doctor's exam notes, some genetic results, the patient's own visual behavior, and taken together with all of that information, that's really where adaptive optics fits in. It differs in the sense that it's giving you additional information, but it isn't really meant to replace any of those previous technologies. It's just yet another tool in the Swiss Army knife of retinal imaging devices that your ophthalmologist has to help study the retina, both in normal health as well as in disease. The breakthrough of adaptive optics in eye research means a literal change in how we see. And Dr. Carroll says this both confirms what was previously known as well as provides insight. What we knew about the retina on a cellular level had all come from histology. People who donate their eyes after death and those tissues get donated to researchers who then put them under a microscope and that would provide a lot of really valuable information. So in some ways we've observed a lot of things that confirm what we saw in histology. The major advantage with that is when you're looking at a piece of retina under a microscope, it's a fixed tissue. So while the type of information isn't really all that different than what we could have gotten under a microscope. The huge advantage is we can correlate it with how the patient sees, and we can non-invasively monitor it over time. And the ability to monitor retinal structure over time is probably the single biggest impact that adaptive optics is bringing to the field of ophthalmology and visual neuroscience. While hopes for it are high, Dr. Carroll says that adaptive optics hasn't yet reached its full potential in impacting patient care through prevention, intervention, and treatment of degenerative eye diseases. There's a lot of hype and hope around adaptive optics and what it can do, and it hasn't realized that potential yet, to be perfectly clear. We certainly hope it will. In some diseases, we're seeing things that we've never seen before on a single cell level and watching how that changes over time, how it does or doesn't correlate with how the patient sees. In many cases, this is probably the most surprising finding we've seen with adaptive optics. And it's one of those things that only when you start looking with a fine-tooth comb, you begin to make these sorts of discoveries. And that's one of the phases we're at right now, is taking a lot of these seemingly paradoxical observations and trying to make sense of them. But as huge of a technological advancement as adaptive optics is in retina research, does he think it's the biggest in the Eye Institute's 40-year history actually. I'd put it as number three. I think ahead of it, a couple of interesting things that people might not be aware of. The Eye Institute is the home of vitreoretinal surgery. In the 1980s, this was the place to be. This was where you came to get trained in how to operate on the human retina. And the second one would be related to gene therapy, which is a really innovative way to think about treating patients with eye disease. The first successful gene therapy that was directed towards these cone photoreceptors was actually done here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Jane Maureen Knights took a monkey who had conventional red-green color blindness and gave it normal color vision using gene therapy. That was some of the first convincing evidence it might be possible to treat patients who have diseases that affect their cone photoreceptors and restore function to them. So adaptive optics, I'll take third place. Still, in marking the 40th anniversary this year, Dr. Carroll stresses the importance of the fact that they've been doing what they do for 40 years. The Eye Institute was one of the first in the country. Before there was ever a National Eye Institute funding body, we had the Eye Institute here in Milwaukee. At the Eye Institute at Frederick Medical College, Wisconsin, you have patient care and research in the same building. You might say, well, that's not unique, but this is 40 years old. We've been doing this for 40 years, before it was cool. I think people in the community and patients realizing you've got this resource in your backyard, innovating in surgical techniques, gene therapies, and now imaging tools at their disposal. That's the important thing, is to know that it's here for them, and we hope it will be for another 40 years. That's Dr. Joe Carroll, co-director of the Advanced Ocular Imaging Program and professor of ophthalmology at Medical College of Wisconsin.
Next, as we mark the 40th anniversary of the Eye Institute, let's turn the focus to a clinical research study underway there. Dr. Judy Kim is a professor of ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a noted national and international expert and speaker in her field. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kim recently to learn about the community-engaged participatory research project she's leading as its principal investigator. It's known as the Mobile Teleophthalmology for Community Eye Screenings, or MTOX, and it's the recipient of a 2016 pilot award from the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. Dr. Kim says she identified the need for her current study as a direct result of another study that preceded it. I've been here about 17 years now seeing a lot of different types of patients, including those with diabetes. What we know is that diabetes causes blindness. However, if it's caught early enough, we can prevent that vision loss. Unfortunately, many people do not get the annual dilated eye examination even though they're diabetic. As a result, people are going blind and losing vision, and I felt passionately that we have to do something about it. That earlier study, the Teleophthalmology to Improve Eye Health Among Latinos, or TEAL study, was funded by a grant from the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and it introduced the concept of conducting eye screenings in the community rather than in a doctor's office. We were not sure whether the people would be accepting of this shift in paradigm of how the care was given. What we found was that they were very accepting of this, wanting to do more of it. It was very convenient that they could have their eyes examined where they live by the staff who's bilingual. And so, based on the findings of the TEAL study, the MTOC study is now the next phase, funded by a 2016 pilot award from CTSI. The MTOC part that's now funded by CTSI is helping us to design software and a platform onto which we can image store and also data manage, which we have been able to do with the help of Marquette. We'll hear more about Marquette's collaboration on the MTOX project in a moment. But first, what exactly is mobile teleophthalmology and how is it being utilized in this project? Teleophthalmology is ophthalmic care through distance. What we do is take pictures of the person's eye, and then that image gets sent over via cloud technology where it's read by a reading center. The reading center grades the images for disease such as diabetic retinopathy, as well as other systemic and eye diseases that show up on the pictures. Information is then graded and documented and sent back to the eye doctor so that information can be then transferred to the patient. So what's new or novel about Dr. Kim's project? Well, she says teleophthalmology imaging is commonly done in doctor's offices. However, the thing that is quite novel about our project was that it was done in the community by the community staff who are bilingual and can educate them on the spot regarding diabetic eye disease and diabetes in general. Now, at this point in our conversation, Dr. Kim introduced Tanvir Rushan, who's with the Marquette University Ubicomp Lab, to explain their collaboration with the MTOX study. The Ubicomp Lab at Marquette University is working in the mobile health area. This project here matches perfectly with our field of work. The thing that we have done with MTOX is combine 
and modify the previous project's work in a better user experience. The software that we have come up with building is we collect the images from the field and we have the software on mobile devices that could be like an iPad or an Android device. The images are loaded to that software using the cloud system that we have. So the images from the camera goes to the cloud and our application synchronizes those images and collects the data with the survey that we collect from the community engagement. And as with developing any new technology, there are challenges. One of the challenges is oftentimes in the community engagement, we don't have internet connection. What MTOX is doing in background is storing data locally onto the device itself. And once the devices are connected to the Wi-Fi, those images are being uploaded to the cloud server. Another challenge is make the system more user-friendly and develop a responsive design so it would fit mobile devices starting from a smartphone to a tablet or to a web browser. Based on the outcome of the current project, Dr. Kim says the hope is to expand mobile tele-ophthalmology on a much larger scale. It has been, from the beginning, our goal to be able to screen eye diseases in all people, regardless of race, socioeconomic status, or where they live. We began with the Latino community because they are one of the high-risk groups. Our goal is that eventually we can scale this not only in southeast Wisconsin, but throughout Wisconsin as well. From the beginning, Dr. Kim says the burning question has been, how do we improve eye health by making eye care more accessible? The way we are providing eye care is not working, and therefore we're missing opportunities for early intervention and saving vision. So we need to do something different, making it user-friendly. What is more user-friendly than providing these screening right where they live. And in order to do that, we needed a more compact camera and also the management system where we can do things in the field. And she's grateful for the 2016 Pilot Award from CTSI that's making the MTOX phase of her project possible. The pilot grant from CTSI helped us to develop these softwares and integrate the images that were already gotten through the TEAL project and be able to marry it for the future images that will be coming through the mobile aspect of the project. The CTSI grant allows us to work on the technical aspect, image management aspect, surveying aspect that are critical for the scalability of our project going forward. So why is now the right time for mobile teleophthalmology and the MTOC study? Dr. Kim says it's because diabetes and diabetes-related eye disease are on the rise. It is more important now than ever because the incidence is increasing every year, and in particular, Hispanics are more prone to getting diabetes. And it's not just a problem of the United States, it's a problem worldwide. It's becoming an epidemic. Finally, with today's show marking the 40th anniversary of the Medical College's Eye Institute, Dr. Kim shares her pride for where it is today and her hopes for its future. For the past 40 years, the Eye Institute has been serving the community here in Milwaukee, but also patients from all over the world. So through patient care, research, and education, we hope to continue to do that better and also serve our community better. Our thanks to Dr. Judy Kim, Professor of Ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Principal Investigator of the MTOC study underway at the Eye Institute. Let's keep our CTS Eye on the Community focused on the MTOX project to learn how it's specifically meeting critical needs in our Latino community. For this, we turned to Al Castro, Program Director of the Latino Geriatric Center, a division of the 
United Community Center in Milwaukee. Al is a co-investigator of the MTOX project. He begins by telling us that the rate of diabetes in the Latino community is unusually high, and it's growing in numbers and concern. We know that we have a high rate of diabetes in the Latino community, and there's been a major increase in the past 10 years or so. So right now, I think our prevalence rate is about 9.6 people out of 100 with diabetes among the Latino population. But we also know many Latinos do not practice good preventive medicine, you might say. So diabetes can affect other parts of the body. Specifically, what this project is about is the impact it has on the eyes. The problem was recognized. Dr. Kim approached us about who's doing eye screenings in the community. She wanted to know what the barriers were. Why aren't people being screened? Al knows exactly what those barriers are. To start with, I guess, just lack of knowledge. Not knowing that eye screenings, besides just an eye exam, are important. They can head off further complications. Secondly, the connection to diabetes and eye disease has not been there in the Latino community. Because if the information is there, but it's not given to the Latino community, what good is it? The other barrier is if I'm a Latino and I don't speak English that well, I go out to this eye institute and I get there and nobody looks like me. They don't speak my language. Another is what if I have limited insurance, but I have no insurance. And then, of course, the distance driving those places. So those were barriers that have gotten in the way of people practicing good eye health. One of the main objectives of the MTOX project is to remove those barriers. And Al Castro's team at the United Community Center is doing just that by providing free eye screenings within the Latino community. Our role is to actually do the eye screenings ourselves. Dr. Kim arranged for the retinopathy camera company to actually come and train us. And the camera will be kept here, but it'll be a mobile camera. So the concept of taking the camera to them, we hope to capture more people out in the community sites where groups gather, but health fairs, festivals, and then those screenings get sent by the cloud. The eye doctor will read them back at the eye institute and then communicate back to the staff about the results of each participant's exam. What we're testing is not so much the camera, but the technology base. We're building the platform for it. From the earlier Teal study, Al is confident that the Latino community will embrace this project reaching out into the community as well. The Latino community really appreciate us coming to them. They've responded well to having Spanish-speaking people doing the exams. They respond well to being close to their homes, and they really respond that it's a free screening. We're dealing with other situations in your life, other economic situations, social situations, especially with more low-income, moderate-income Latinos. So they appreciate the free screening part. And they like the education piece, too, because while they're here, they get a brief education about their eye health. So we know people will respond by being in the community, and we expect a higher response rate by now taking the camera in a mobile model out to them. He stresses the importance of translational science in bridging the gap between healthcare, research, and the Latino community. The Latino community historically has not been very involved or educated about health research. It's something we don't really pay much attention to. So the idea of research is a new concept for many people in our community. Vice versa, the academic hospitals, clinics have had difficulty in engaging Latinos to understand the value of research. So the role that we play at the United Community Center is being able to translate what's meant by this project, what this research is about, in a way that the community understands it. Then we help translate what their community is saying to the investigators, so we're all talking a common language. And he recognizes the importance of the CTSI supporting this phase of the project with a 2016 pilot award. I'm glad to see the whole push from CTSI in expanding 
expanding the amount of community translation efforts being done, especially in the Latino community. And it's not just Milwaukee. I'm talking about the nation as a whole. We're just not that much involved in health research. So these kind of projects will go a long ways to opening doors to get more Latinos involved into health research that will improve the health of the community and help engage more academic universities to get into the Latino community. So does Al Castro think success of the MTOX platform in the Latino community could lead to expanded coverage into other communities as well? Oh, heck yeah, because diabetes is also very high in the African-American population, very high in the Native American population. So yeah, the hope would be that this could be the platform to launch other initiatives similar to that in those populations. And we forget that here in Wisconsin, there's 70 some other counties that aren't urban, that don't have an eye institute. So could telemedicine be used to increase eye screening for health among those communities out in the rural areas and other parts of the state? Sure, it's got potential for that. If you'd like information about upcoming free community eye screenings as part of this project, the actual screenings themselves are scheduled through the program coordinator that works under Dr. Kim. Her name is Velinka Medich, and she's at 414-955-7831, or they can contact me directly, and that's 414-384-3100. We'll be sure to post that information, along with additional links, on our CTSI website, along with this show. That's Al Castro, Program Director of the Latino Geriatric Center at the United Community Center in Milwaukee, and co-investigator of the Mobile Tele-Ophthalmology for Community Eye Screenings Project. And that brings us to an end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Walter Gager, Dr. Judy Kim, and Dr. Joe Carroll from the Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute, Al Castro from the United Community Center, and Tanvir Rushan from the Ubicomp Lab at Marquette University. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And while you're there, please be sure to sign up as a community member. We need your help as we strive to advance clinical and translational team science in improving the health of our community and people worldwide. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer, co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.